everyone hopes that they never have to face a disaster, but that is the reality for more and more Americans. And it turns out that the way that we deal with disasters in the United States actually widens inequalities instead of making them smaller. From hurricanes in the South, tornadoes in the Midwest, drought and wildfire in the West, snowstorms in the North, natural disasters are increasingly severe and are leaving lasting impacts on our communities. But are these disasters inevitable? That is the question we're gonna to tackle today during the climate conversation. Welcome to the Climate Conversation. I'm Dan Brissett, joined as always by my intrepid co-host, Sydney O'Shaughnessy. Hi, Sid, how are you doing today? Hi, Dan. And today, as you may have guessed, we are diving into natural disasters. But before we get started, I think it's important to take a closer look at the actual term natural disaster. Anna Weber, a senior policy analyst for the Natural Resources Defense Council, who you heard at the beginning of the show, is here today to break it down. When people talk about disasters, we often use the term natural disasters, right? We all know what we mean when we say natural disasters. But if we take a step back and think about that word, are disasters really natural? Hazards are natural, right? If a hurricane happens in the middle of the ocean and there are no people around, is that a disaster? What we think of as a disaster is actually a hazards effect on a vulnerable population. And on the one hand, that's a little scary because it means that people are putting other people in harm's way. On the other hand, it also means that we as human beings have the power to protect ourselves and communities from the effects of disasters. So every year, the United States federal government, let alone states, municipalities, and individual households spend billions and billions of dollars responding to and recovering from disasters. And that doesn't even touch the effects of disasters that we can't easily quantify with a dollar sign. Despite that, there's actually no systematic objective way for us to look at how we are dealing with disasters and apply the lessons learned for the future. So after a disaster, people talk about lessons learned a lot, right? Different government agencies write reports. There are sometimes congressional investigations for a really big disaster. Lots of times there are local investigations that look into what happened and what we did right and wrong. But there is no across the board way that we can apply those lessons and actually turn them into policy. So as climate change exacerbates the effects of disasters, we really need to be taking a closer look with how we deal with these hazards and how we can change our policies to make all of us more resilient. So let's dive into natural disaster or hazard preparedness and how the formation of a national disaster safety board could help improve community resilience across the United States. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to see you again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And I say again because you were actually a panelist on a briefing that we hosted back in April with the Energy Efficiency for All Coalition. And we talked about the negative impacts of um, negative climate impacts on vulnerable communities, especially in um, affordable housing. And so we're very happy to welcome you back to the podcast today. Great, thanks. Um, Anna, could you tell us a little bit about the work you do at the Natural Resources Defense Council? Sure. So the Natural Resources Defense Council is an international environmental 
nonprofit organization. And NRDC does a whole range of things, including clean energy, nature conservation, um, you name it, some sort of environmental issue, NRDC is probably there. But I work on a small team within NRDC that focuses specifically on climate adaptation. And so we're not looking at um, uh, how to mitigate the effects of climate change in terms of greenhouse gases or fossil fuels, but we're looking at what the effects of climate change are today and what they will be uh, and how they will take place in our communities in the near to long term. And so one of the things that comes up a lot when we talk about climate adaptation is disasters as sort of like the big ticket issue that you think about when you think about climate change impacts, right? We think about hurricanes and floods and storms um, and the sort of immediate effects that they have on us and our communities. And so my work specifically looks at how we can change policy so that we are better able to face these impacts of climate change. And in particular, how we can make sure that the communities that are on the front lines of climate change are well served by these adaptation policies. And so one of the areas that we look at, for example, is pre-disaster hazard mitigation. So what investments can we make before a disaster strikes that limit the damage and suffering that happens after a disaster? Thanks, Anna. We invited you in today to discuss something pretty specific, uh, a proposal to create a national disaster safety board. Can you tell us a little bit about what this board would do and why NRDC is voicing its support for its creation? Sure. So a National Disaster Safety Board is kind of a mouthful, right? Um, but we think it's actually really important. This is, to be clear, just one small piece of the sorts of big picture policy changes that we need to be better prepared for the effects of climate change and to better respond to the effects that are happening right now. So a National Disaster Safety Board would essentially be an independent, objective federal agency that would go in after major disasters and investigate not from the point of view of looking at whose fault it is or who is to blame, but actually looking at the underlying factors that turn a natural hazard, like a hurricane or a flood, into a disaster, something that has major impacts on human life and safety and property. So right now, there is actually no process by which we can systematically look at how our policies work when they're tested by a disaster. Uh, what we did right, what we didn't do well, um, and most importantly, there is no systematic process, no sort of across the board standard for how those lessons get disseminated across the country or across levels of government. Right now, the way that we work on disasters in this country is very siloed. Different agencies all participate in sort of disasters in some way or another, right? It's not just FEMA or state emergency management agencies. It's basically everyone because disasters affect everything. However, after a disaster happens, there's no one that takes a big picture sort of 30,000 foot view of everything that happened and how it all interacted with each other. And then how we can basically change our policies for the future and make sure that we're learning from the experiences that we had. Well, that seems like a huge thing to set up this national disaster board. So I was wondering, is there like a blueprint that you can follow? Are there any other examples of successful national boards that this new disaster board could be modeled after? 
There definitely is. This is actually modeled very closely after the National Transportation Safety Board. I'm trying to enunciate really well because the NT as in Thomas DSB and the ND as in Daniel DSB sound very similar when you say them out loud. So usually when I'm saying the NDSB, I mean the disaster one, uh, but I'll, I'll try to be clear. So I'm sure that listeners have heard of the National Transportation Safety Board. Um, after a major aircraft incident, for example, the NTSB will come in and do a sort of soup to nuts investigation of what the safety implications of that disaster were. Um, and they will promulgate recommendations that are adopted by airline manufacturers or the airlines, airplane manufacturers, airlines, the FAA, um, or other regulatory or non-regulatory agencies to make travel safer. And this has been a huge success. Uh, since the National Transportation Safety Board came uh, into being, they have made thousands of recommendations for how to improve transportation safety. About 80% of them have actually been adopted successfully. And um, you know, we can even just think about the past several decades, how much safer commercial air, commercial air travel has become in large part because of these recommendations. One of the things that I think is so interesting about this model of having an independent safety board is that it's not within any other government agency. The National Transportation Safety Board doesn't sit inside the Department of Transportation because it doesn't really make sense for an agency to be evaluating itself in an objective way. That's just really hard to do, especially when it comes to comparing and um, sort of looking across different agencies' actions, right? And so as a result of that, actually, not only is the National Transportation Safety Board totally independent, but it also doesn't have any ability to compel the adoption of its recommendations in most cases. It, they're literally just recommendations. However, everyone can tell that these recommendations are coming from a place of wanting to protect people's lives. And so therefore the recommendations have overwhelmingly been accepted um, by the entities that can put them into practice. And so we wanna take this transportation safety model and apply it to an even bigger problem, right? Which is the problem of disasters. Uh, while these different types of incidents are really different from each other, like a plane crash is really different from a hurricane in all sorts of ways, but we think this fundamental model can be applied to disasters in a way that can be really helpful for people. And, and now I kind of wanna make sure we frame this through climate change for our listeners. So why is this National Disaster Safety Board essential for disaster planning and preparedness, especially through the framework of climate change? I think everyone listening to this probably understands and agrees that climate change is increasing the frequency and intensity of disasters. There's been a lot of research in recent years um, assessing how much climate change uh, plays in terms of how strong and how frequent disasters are. This is across all types of hazards from sort of acute hazards that happen all at once, like a hurricane or a flash flood, to big, long, slow disasters like drought in California, which sort of builds over a slow period of time, but is no less of a disaster. Um, 
And because of this, we, we think that this adds a lot of urgency to the way that our disaster systems work here in the United States and of course around the world. Uh, another component that is so important here is the disproportionate effect of disasters on vulnerable communities. Um, again, there is a lot of research and we don't need research to see this, right? It's good to have the scientific evidence, but communities that experience disasters can absolutely tell you that disasters do not affect everyone equally. People who have more resources, more social capital, more political power are better in a better place to recover from disasters or per, to prepare for them in the first place. And those are the people that our disaster systems are sort of set up to assist. Um, so as a result of this, and there have been some, there's been some great research that has come out on this just in the past couple of years, looking at how our disaster systems and, and the sort of assistance grants and other types of support that we provide before and after disasters uh, are really only accessible in a lot of cases to people who already have resources and to local governments who already have resources. It's one thing to get a grant, and that's great, but if you have to apply for the grant, you have to have somebody who knows how to apply for the grant. You have to have someone who has the time to do it, to navigate the bureaucracy, and in a lot of cases to pay some of the cost of the money, because a lot of the times federal grants aren't free. There's a cost share that comes with it that local governments or states have to pay. As a result, we see that disaster policies, not just disasters themselves, but the actual policies that we use to address disasters increase inequality. For example, they increase the racial wealth gap. There's some really compelling research from a few years ago that shows that after a disaster, white families on average gain wealth, but black families on average lose wealth. And that, when I read that for the first time, it blew my mind. But if you think about how that works, it makes a ton of sense because again, aid is set up to assist people who already have a certain level of resources and capacity. So those are the people who are able to take advantage of it. And the same is true at the scale of local governments, state governments, and so on and so forth. And so I think the intersection of this growing awareness and attention paid to disaster justice as a part of environmental justice, climate justice, racial justice, Compare, uh, it, um, looking at that at the same time as we see the effects of disasters increasing because of climate change, this is the time to take a look at our disaster policies and make the improvements that we know that we need to make. So Anna, let's say that we um, have a national disaster safety board. It's in place, it's doing its work, a disaster hits, the NDSB shows up, it does its analysis, it talks to people who are affected, it comes to conclusions, and it generates all this new information, all this analysis. How would we use that information and analysis to improve the way we plan and make our communities more resilient? There are lots of ways that this could play out, and the legislation that we've seen so far to set up an NDSB leaves a lot of flexibility in this case. One of the things that I think is really important is that the NDSB wouldn't just create recommendations and then you know, send them out into the world and then never follow up. Um, if we then look at the comparison to the Transportation Safety Board, like it's one thing to say, hey, giant multinational corporation that builds airplanes, we think that you should change the way that you make the wings of your planes, right? Because that multinational corporation has a lot of resources and they can put in the upfront investment to make their 
planes safer because it's the right thing to do and it will also help their bottom line. This paying money to save lives and money in the future is really, really hard um, for other types of entities like cash-strapped local governments, especially small ones, individual households. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, I could um, invest in a more efficient water heater and I'll save money on my electricity bill in the future. That's great as long as you can pay that money upfront. Um, and so one of the things that the National Disaster Safety Board would do is ideally help to close this capacity gap by providing technical assistance and uh, other resources to help local governments, state governments, community groups, whoever, actually implement these recommendations so that they can be put into practice. After a disaster happens, there's a ton of discussion of lessons learned. That's like, you see that everywhere. What lessons have we learned? What lessons have we learned? Um, but it's one thing to identify the lessons and it's really another one to put them into practice. Definitely. And I think we, this has been such a great conversation. Like I haven't even thought of, of all of the intricacies that go with disaster planning before. And I just don't wanna miss anything. So is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners that, you know, is important when we're discussing the National Disaster Safety Board? One of the things that I think is exciting about the way that the National Disaster Safety Board would be set up is that it has a specific um, office within the board that focuses specifically on disproportionately impacted communities. Um, and you might think, well, shouldn't that be incorporated throughout all the uh, operations of the board? And yes, it absolutely should. But I think this shows uh, a sort of upfront dedication to this really critical problem of how communities and households that are more vulnerable become increasingly vulnerable in our current disaster system. Uh, there actually FEMA's own National Advisory Council put out a report a few months ago that says, through the entire disaster cycle, communities that have been underserved stay underserved and thereby suffer needlessly and unjustly. And so these are, this is FEMA's own National Advisory Council talking to its agency. And so I think this really points to the growing awareness of this problem amongst federal policymakers. And the fact that the National Disaster Safety Board has this focus baked in from the start is really promising. Another thing that I wanna point out about the Disaster Safety Board is that it was crafted with a human focus. And by that, I mean, it is set up specifically to protect human lives and prevent human injury and suffering. A lot of the time when we talk about disaster policy, we talk about it in terms of dollars and cents. We say $1 investment in hazard mitigation can create a $6 return on investment, right? We talk about these sorts of dollar figures all of the time because it's relatively easy to calculate. It's pretty easy to calculate how much money it would take to rebuild a building after it is destroyed in a disaster. And so it's sort of a shortcut that we use to talk about uh, larger policy issues. But at the end of the day, we want to be thinking about people and not property. And that's a sort of big shift that I think people are talking more and more about in the policy space. And I think that is something is really critical because when we focus on what people actually need to be more resilient or to be better served after a disaster or to have the capacity to prepare better for a disaster, um, then I think we're focusing on what's really important as opposed to when we're focusing just on, you know, how many dollars will it take to rebuild this infrastructure? We're missing so much 
of what the actual impact of disasters are. And so I'm really excited that the Disaster Safety Board has this focus specifically on human lives and well-being. Um, NRDC is a big organization. Uh, your colleagues, you and your colleagues cover lots of issues. Um, check out Anna's uh, blogs and her articles and all of her research on nrdc.org. Um, and stay tuned because it sounds like there could be some developments happening uh, in the policy space around the National Disaster Safety Board. And my guess is that the best way to keep track of that is to keep track of Anna's work. That's definitely one way you can keep track of it. Uh, I'll say best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, for those who are interested in this, definitely keep an eye on our work at NRDC, as well as that of our partner organizations, including the Association of State Floodplain Managers, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, uh, Enterprise Community Partners, um, the Anthropocene Alliance, and so many more. Uh, as of today, we're recording this in early June, just recently, um, Bipartisan legislation has been introduced in the Senate and also in the House to create a National Disaster Safety Board. So we're really excited to see where this goes in Congress and uh, hopefully see a Disaster Safety Board come into being in the near future. That's great. And um, this is a sort of the rare opportunity for a twofer plug. So in addition to all this stuff Anna just said, I mentioned this at the outset, but Anna was one of, Anna was a, on a panel uh, on an ESI briefing on April 16th, protecting vulnerable, protecting vulnerable communities from climate impacts. Every listener should do yourself a favor, do yourselves a favor, go watch Anna's presentation, read the written summary, watch the whole briefing. Um, but I learned so much from Anna's presentation. So um, a plug for an ESI event, but specifically a plug for one of our uh, top panelists of 2021 so far. Thank you so much, Dan. Well, Sid, I really enjoyed that conversation with Anna. Um, it's a really, really interesting idea. And, you know, we're actually recording this at an important time. We're doing this the beginning, middle of the second week of June, which means we're in the middle of the second week of hurricane season 2021. And, um, you know, there are already news reports uh, about what weather forecasters are expecting out of the Atlantic hurricane season. Uh, people are already starting to get, uh, I think, justifiably nervous about the wildfires uh, potential in the West. And so this is a really important topic, and um, it won't surprise me that it, it gains some momentum going forward as we have to find new ways to uh, adapt to climate change as it's happening. Absolutely. And I definitely think the National Disaster Safety Board could help us get there. As always, if you want to learn more about EESI's work, head to our website at eesi.org. Also, follow us on social media at EESI online for all of our recent updates. The Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. Go to eesi.org slash sign up to subscribe. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.